folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Psy War, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the Farm Podcast, all one word, the Farm Podcast.store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Joining me again for this outing is a repeater and a heavyweight one at that. He is Doc Inferno, host of Doom Men to Mori podcast, which discusses crime, parapolitics, apocalyptism, and extremism, many of the farm's favorite subjects. So definitely check that out, guys. So we will be picking up where we left off in our discussion of Jalo and Dario Argenta in this outing. During the first installment, we really delved deeply into the background of Jalo, its links in American noir, its uniquely Italian characteristics, the influence that surrealism and Dada had on it, and also some of the more disturbing events unfolding in Italy during the heyday of Jalo, namely the years of lead, the monster of Florence, and so forth. So there's a lot of good backdrop to the subjects that we're going to be getting into in this one, if you guys have not listened to that one already. So anyway, with that being said, for this outing, we're really going to start delving deeply into some of Dario Argento's classic films and explore the additional subtext that we have not already covered in the first installment. And trust me, there's a lot of it. Argento films are just loaded with so much compelling symbolism, hints at uh, geopolitical events, you name it. So on that note, let us start the show. Let's start getting into some of uh, his films specifically here. We're going to break down some of his class, uh, focusing on the ones from the 70s to the 80s. So we'll start here with Cat of Nine Tales. Uh, so what have you got for us on that one, Doc? Okay, I'm, I'll, I'll confess I'm not too familiar with Cat of Nine Tales, but I think the plot revolves around sort of like it's supposed to act as a whip. There's like nine, there's nine different uh, people involved and um it's sort of like the way the way that it's designed is designed in the form of a whip um and that's why it's called cat o nine tails is kind of a play on that 
so primarily this focuses around a uh, we find a man that is blinded. Uh, I think he's legally blind and he no longer has the capacity to to see, but he worked previously as a detective. And um, this is something interesting, I think, also. And I think you'll appreciate this, Stephen, is that a lo- I, this is where I think some Giallo inherits from uh, further noir uh, novels. Uh, it kind of shows that it's uh, inheritance is that a lot of the uh, protagonists, a lot of the people that are involved in sort of solving cases, they have like kind of a disability. A lot of the villains also um, have a disability. Uh, and I think this is uniquely kind of part of noir uh, sort of lore. Uh, so anyway, he is a puzzle solver. He fall, he falls into like this, uh, I think it's called Tasia uh, Corporation. It is a genetics uh, corporation and uh, there there are people that are involved in that and they're they're involved in kind of corporate uh, sort of espionage stealing secrets from them but it's believed the central premise of the theme is that someone who runs the uh, corporation they have a family member that could or could not be their uh, daughter or niece And it's believed that the daughter or niece could be a potential killer because they have the XXY uh, syndrome. And, you know, this is, I mentioned previously, this is kind of uniquely Argento. Argento is the only person I would know that would use sort of a malady, a medical malady as a plot device and and as a primary theme of like a giallo film. I wouldn't imagine too many other people do. So, this also leads, and I'm just going to say this is part of the movie itself. This leads an interesting question uh, that is on everybody's mind when they study like true crime or they study uh, sort of mysteries is, is killing inherited? Is it a part of uh, some kind of genetic inheritance? Uh, is it with some affliction as many people believed or they used to believe due to eugenics uh, and you know, this is this is not a very complex film per se, and that's the thing about Argento's films is they don't have any great sort of like character development or sort of complex plot. But it's it's very adventurous and interesting. He chose sort of the X X X Y Y sort of chromosome deficiency as a part of the main device. So we learn, you know, through uh, various different uh, plot developments. That what happens is, is that it really is the niece and the daughter and the the father or like someone related to her is sort of covering up the killings and uh, maybe are responsible for the killings themselves. And the, this, like I said, revolves a lot of his earlier plots, which is called the Animal Trilogy, which is called that because they have uh, the theme or, or name of an animal in their title, such as the blur, the birds of the crystal plumage. Uh, which is not Argento's original source work. I believe he got that from an American novel uh, by Frederick Brown, the something, the screaming Mimi's, I believe is the name of that. Uh, but primarily Cato Nine Tales revolves around uh, corporate espionage and a genetics firm. And they're trying to prove that there is a linkage to killings. And of course, in the classical Argento manner, uh, he's exploring these topics if 
uh, someone is like intrinsically linked to being a killer because their, uh, you know, their parents or their their relatives were had that sort of inheritance, and this will play on to like another film uh, that's not greatly appreciated by people, but probably the most atmospheric of a lot of his films, um, and really his return to glory in terms of giallo, and that is opera, where the uh, singer Betty. The opera singer she has a mother and by the way i want to say just spoilers if you're watching this watch the argento films before you listen to this uh show because i have spoiled a lot of different plots in uh you know argento films but it turns out that her mother was sadistic and was getting her lover to torture and kill people uh right in front of um right in front of him and this sort of traumatized him and made him snap and he's now targeting her um and this this is like sort of the subplot of this this entire film uh but we'll get into opera later but cat of nine tails uh not an extremely compelling movie argento doesn't really like the film uh but it's better than average fare um definitely worth a watch not uh not Argento at his finest hour. He's still trying to uh, sort of develop a voice for Giallo films. And the same thing goes with a lot of the Animals trilogy movies too, which I talked about Four Flies and Velvet previously. Uh, that's the one where uh, this rock drummer falls in love with this woman and this woman, it turns out her father dressed her up as a boy and uh, he's sent all these people to stalk uh, to stalk him and through these series of different plots and blackmail, he kills somebody and, uh, you know, the killer sees him killing somebody and ends up blackmailing him and, and trailing him and stalking him and harassing him until it's revealed kind of that it's his wife, Nina, who calculated, you know, very, very calculatively uh, married him because he looked like her father. And uh, this was the same father that had her sort of dress up as a boy and committed to a mental institution. So uh, that should give you some of the uh, indications of a very, very heavy plots by Argento movies, uh, which on the face value seem like they're very, very dark, uh, which they are. I won't lie to you. Giallo films in many ways are really messed up, uh, but it's the stylistic uh, sort of presentation that Argento does to his films it makes uh, sort of the macabre and twisted uh, very artistic, and even Cat O' Nine Tales is is uh, is that case. Deep Red often rivals Suspiria as Argento's best film in many critical assessments, and it's certainly one of my favorites. Uh, what is your take on the doc? Uh, I like Deep Red. I think it's a good film. I've only recently explored Deep Red. It's not a film that I'm too quaintly familiar with in terms of Argento's uh, work. I just recently watched it. Uh, I do find it interesting that um, we, we were talking about it earlier. It's set in Turin, uh, the clairvoyant at the conference uh, you know, kind of pinpoints who the killer is in the audience and says almost with precision predicts, uh, you know, what the people have and, you know, the keys in the audience, uh, that somebody's appearance, 
uh, or what somebody's thinking so much. So I appreciate the fact to where she goes and freaks out at the killer being in the audience saying that she ominously fills the killer's presence. Uh, we see like a foreshadowing of the killer in the mirror. I think that's a very good touch. So from what I've seen, and I also like the uh, Daria Nicolodi uh, dialogues between the jazz musician. Uh, what's his name, Stephen? Do you know his name? Uh, no, I can't recall off the top of my head. Yeah, the, the jazz musician and, and Daria Nicolodi, who plays the journalist in the film, uh, they're they're constantly having these exchanges about, you know, about gender dynamics. Uh, the guy is a little bit of a misogynist. The uh, Diane, uh, Daria Nicolodi's character is trying to prove herself. She has kind of a crush on the guy. The guy sometimes is not really certain about his masculinity. Uh, so they wrestle with those concepts. Uh, I like the overarching sort of atmosphere in this movie. I don't think it is done quite as good as Tenebrae in terms of its architecture. I think Tenebrae has more of a uh, paranoid sort of vibe to it. And, and you could feel every, the walls are kind of enclosing and the architecture itself are alive. But in this film, the setting of the statue of Poe where uh, Helga, the, the, the clairvoyant is killed and, uh, killed through in this, you know, he kind of sees this, he goes into the apartment uh, and, and notices this and really deep red, of course, has the whole distraction, the typical Dario Argento distraction through the doll. Uh, you know, uh, I don't really like the Saw franchise, but I think James Wan said that uh, the doll in, in deep red was an in inspiration for the, the doll in Saw. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Saw franchise, but I, I find that an interesting fact. Uh, I can definitely see that. And the fact that the lullaby and also the trauma at first uh, sort of foreshadows the, you know, let's just say I'm going to spoil it. it. It turns out that it's his friend's mother is the corporate. And uh, like I said, Argento always has a way to develop surrealism, uh, surrealism and also uh, later killers that you'd never suspect. Like you'd never suspect this guy's mother being, you know, the main killer, even though it's kind of hinted the bloody knife, the kid uh, in the beginning and the, the lullaby and just the way the lullaby kind of plays it where there's always looming danger, the killers around. Um, I, 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 it's a good film. I mean, I have to explore deep red a little bit more than what I have. I haven't, look too deeply into into deep red but it's definitely i would say out of all his films deep red is probably the most the most hitchcockian film that he has uh i think argento doesn't really he gets a lot from hitchcock but he doesn't really uh aesthetically present a lot of his uh hitch hitch hitchcockian tendencies um what what do you think about that do you think deep red is like the most sort of Hitchcockian uh, Argento film. Yeah, it would definitely be up there. Um, I mean, even the uh, one of the early posters for it uh, when it was in the Italian was it Profundio Ruscio uh, is very much modeled upon uh, the famous Vertigo uh, movie poster. So, yeah, I could definitely see that. And it would have to be, I would think, high in terms of the Hitchcock influence, no doubt. 
Um, <clears throat> I do like the touch of having the parapsychology conference mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie. Again, this is, you know, coming out in 75. This is like right around the time when you're starting to hear things about the SRI remote viewing things and the sort of renewed interest in parapsychology that was playing out around this time. So it's, you know, it kind of gives it a very uh, interesting uh, aspect to the film. And again, it's a bit of a, a slight supernatural element in a genre that doesn't usually feature them. I also uh, really enjoy the use of music in this. You can mm-hmm. see the lullaby. The uh, well, I was actually thinking more in terms of the score. I mean, I just okay, yeah, that yeah. Um, all that theme that they use towards the end, and then there's just sort of that. It's towards the end when the uh, David Hemmings character is being stalked by the killer, and I think he hears like a random noise, and the score just sort of stops for a second, and there's dead silence, and then it picks up again. And um, well, anyway, you can definitely see uh, the influence this would have had on somebody like Martin Scorsese or later Quentin Tarantino in terms of how that they would incorporate more contemporary musical styles into their pictures because i think that this is just a it's a fantastic use of a rock score in a movie and a genre specifically that uh, is very dependent upon the score to build suspense and tension and it's just uh it's great how he does that in the um the last 20 or so minutes of the film uh, but yeah, there's a lot to be said for it. I mean again I like the touch of using the Poe statue like you're saying and just um yeah, I I have not seen this as many times as I would like either. It's definitely something that warrants a uh, deeper dive because it seems like there's a lot going on in this movie. Uh, Absolutely. Well, all right, let's get on to uh, let's get into uh, or Tenebrae. Uh, I know that's one of your favorites. Did you have anything else to add about it? Well, I think I've I pretty much disclosed most of the stuff that I wanted to disclose in Tenebrae, kind of inadvertently. Um, you know, I was kind of pressed on time, so I didn't inc- I didn't include it. Obviously, I can't include everything about Argento. Argento is like, believe it or not, had tomes and tomes of stuff about him, written about him, psychoanalyzing his movies, doing the uh, feminist critique, doing the Delusian critique, the guitar, guitar critique. There's like every you could think of like any kind of academic has, a, you know, kind of analyzed uh Argento's films and Tenebrae I think is one of the most edifying movies in terms of like pathos or you know development in in, in all of his films in my opinion because it explores so many topics and it's extra I like it because it's extremely controversial anything uh sort of controversial in in the film I, and and just like the one shot scene where it goes it pans up and uh probably also forms let, let's just say it uh, they're going after like the killer's going after the lesbian couple. Um, and obviously they're fighting because one of the, one of the women took home, uh, you know, a, kind of a man and the, they're, they're invoking kind of jealousy. So the killer comes in there and says, dirty, 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 dirty slut or something like that. She, he says something under his breath and uh, her shirt flies up. It makes an imprint almost like a, let's just say a, a vagina and he stabs through it. And I, I think that is a very iconic scene, a very uh, scene that, that releases a lot of pathos in terms of like, uh, you know, the, the killer and kind of the killer's motivations. So I think out of all the films that 
Argento has done, I think this probably is more of an insight into a dark kind of psychology and a dark personality out of all his other films. And of course, like uh, the fact that it's set into kind of a cataclysmic, although it's not indicated, uh, it's sort of a cataclysmic sort of setting or background in Tenebrae, uh, I think is adds a kind of extra layer to uh, the film that, that it, it shows like wide open spaces of, and, and at the same time, these wide open spaces and this like brutalist uh, architecture, uh, modernist architecture is uh, becomes almost a menace to itself to where you could believe there are homeless people chasing uh, a shoplifter that's assumed to like have pages of uh, Peter North's book stuffed in her mouth and stabbed to death. Uh, you can actually believe that that is going to uh, sort of foreshadow the, these types of uh, incidents and events. And and like I mentioned previously, the incident where they stumble upon the killer's lair or the, the apartment uh, where the, where the guy gets killed uh, seems to also like foreshadow the, the scene in scream, the opening in scream where the shadow of the killer is seen and, uh, is and is revealed, and like I said, also the doubles that's involved in, uh, you know, that kind of shows that the alter ego of every person in the film has like a, a dual, a dualistic uh, representation. Whether it's the detective, it's again, I I think Daria Nicolodi's character, um, uh, the like everybody has like kind of a mirror reflection of one one another, and including you know Peter North himself. Uh, and it's Argent. I think it's Argento's also, uh, F you to many people that said that, you know, he made accusations against him and said that, uh, he, he's going after like people that are overly moralistic, uh, and critiquing his film and saying, yes, I deal with films that are twisted. I deal with films that are kind of dark expressions of, you know, humanity, but at the same time, are you going to blame me for, uh, for many of like the, you know, unnecessary sort of screwed up things in society. And like I said, also, this is a very personal film to Argento because he had an incident where someone was stalking him and calling him uh, probably in the same threatening tone that the killer was to a lot of his victims. And uh, like I said, this is an interesting film. Uh, this is a film that I think deserves more recognition that is given. Uh, it's one of my favorites, along with, uh, you know, opera and phenomena. Well, let's get into phenomena then. I believe this was uh, his follow-up to Tenebrae. Uh, this is uh, his film with uh, Jennifer Conley starring it in one of her earliest roles. Uh, so what's your take on phenomena? Also, it's got the great Donald Pleasance in there. Yeah, Donald Pleasance is excellent in this. Yeah, got to give him a um, Tenebrae oh, yeah. Jackson, so another one of my favorite horror character actors. Um. Phenomena is hated by people like out of all like the uh, movies that I think you could besides like, you know, Argento's later works like of all his 80s movies, uh, this people feel like phenomena is like un unfinished. Uh, they feel like it's it's trying too hard to be a supernatural thriller film, but at the same time, it's trying to be a giallo film. Uh, in my opinion, I think it it sort of perfects a lot of these different uh, you know, uh, these a lot of these different like uh, sort of motifs that 
Argento has developed over the years. Uh, plus, I love the angle of like a, a, a you know, 14 year old Jennifer Connelly, uh, you know, as as like a, a girl and like a boarding school in, in Switzerland, which, by the way, is extremely weird place, Switzerland itself uh, at the uh, Richard Wagner school where she's. She's like, uh, the, the, you know, Daria Nicolodi plays the, uh, I think the headmistress there. Uh, she plays the villain throughout the film, and, and she does a rather excellent villain in this film. And and we got everything from like uh, chimp assistants that assist uh, Donald Pleasant, so of course is sporting a very, very, very uh, bad Scottish accent. Uh, but, you know, and it's. Like I said, the main central theme of this movie is a girl with psycho uh, telekinesis that can talk to and sort of control bugs uh, is finding a, a serial killer. And it's done so through the golden larvae. I mean, I, I got to be honest, this is so surrealistic and over the top. What's not to love about this film? Um, you know, and then, like I said, with the backdrop of like the Swiss Alps. Uh, it adds for some extra depth and some surrealism in uh, Argento's like catalog. And primarily I like this film, you know, because the telekinesis is sort of the central theme and uh, entomology is sort of like the central theme. And what I noticed about Argento uh, from reading like about like his like development for movies is that he will actually do research into uh, crime scene investigation. He will also do research in sort of the characteristics and behaviors of animals, uh, like he did so in like the movie Opera, um, where he he noted that like the sort of species of ravens or jays that are attached to the opera production sort of remember, you know, people's faces. And this is like a central plot to, uh, you know, the the film. And the same thing with phenomena, which. A lot of people criticize, you know, a very young Jennifer Connelly's acting ability in the film, but I thought she she sort of carried the film along with Donald Pleasance and uh, the fact that also like there's all these disgusting things like maggots and bodies and swimming pools and uh, you know these these things like bugs which you ordinarily wouldn't like associate with, uh, you know, with like young young schoolgirls in a boarding school in the the Swiss Alps. Uh, she really pulls it off. And the thing about it is her character has an innocence that you see also in the Susie uh, Banian character and in Suspiria. And that I, I don't know, like, this movie, I can't, I can't sing higher praises about it. It's like, it's definitely up there for favorite uh, uh, Dario Argento films. One thing that I found amusing about Phenomena with the whole subplot with uh, Donald Pleasance's character having the service chimpanzee and <laughs> yeah. um, the psyche connection she has to the insects and what have you, it seems like um, that might have influenced George A. Romero's decision to make uh, Monkey Shines in 1988. Oh yeah, I thought about that, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some parallels to that. So again, you can uh, kind of again see how... Um, Argento and Romero were sort of uh, keeping eye on what each other were doing. Of course, what it was 1990, they did two evil eyes together as well, which I think was their last collaboration. But let me let me mention something interesting also about Argento films, including this one, um, is sort of beheading of the victims. That 
I think that's interesting. I think that's an interesting touch in terms of like his, uh, you know, some of his uh, motifs and films. That's that's a common theme in a lot of Argento's films. Uh, do you think there's like any deeper meaning to that? Like, cause like the, the Dutch student um, whose initial like death sets off the mystery of uh, Donald Pleasant and like all of his like assistants are, are dying off. All his young assistants are dying off. But do you think there's like any significance to like the beheadings in Argento's uh, films? I mean, it's definitely possible. Obviously, beheadings have a lot of significance in the occult, severed heads in general. Uh, I mean, I I definitely could see him putting in there as possibly a nod to some of that imagery in Rosicrucianism and alchemy and so forth, hermeticism in general. Um, also, to trauma, I believe it's like what the killer collects, yeah. severed heads of his victims, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, that's certainly a recurring motif i mean it also sort of harkens back to the whole concept of the head hunt some of the theories that modern forms of soccer were you know based upon the uh you know ritual games that the celts played but the severed heads of uh the warriors that they had defeated again how accurate that is is debatable but yeah i mean there are these traditions and i mean certainly uh the skull cult might be the oldest form of religion we found evidence of this going back even to the neanderthals so yeah it does raise some possibilities if there is deeper significance in it but uh, that's something else i had noticed as well uh is the recurrence of decapitations in his films oh oh yeah and also um the fact that you know jennifer connelly's character in this she is sort of seen as um, demonic by the Daria Nicolodi character and also the headmistress. They consider her demonic, and they they did, the reason why they do this is they discover, and a lot of the other girls at the boarding school, they discover that she has an ability to control insects, and so they automatically denote uh, that she is demonic. Now, Argento was you know already did Suspiria which kind of flirts with the occult which is etc uh but it seems also like he jumps back to like conventional sort of uh sensibilities and conventional sort of like conventionals of good or bad good bad or evil he goes back to this and uh sort of denotes this uh that flies and insects are sort of attached you know like locusts and uh, the sort of uh, Old Testament with the the plagues and etc. It he denotes this and he puts his interjects this in the phenomena script. I just want to add that because I think that's uh, another interesting aspect to this film. Uh, how also Ar- Argento goes from non Christian non Christian definitions of sort of occultism uh, to sort of Christian definitions of morality back into like his movies i just wanted to note that all right let's get into another one of my favorite uh argento films which is opera it's a novel take on uh, macbeth among other things uh which is certainly one of shakespeare's most occulted plays and also a play that has a long legacy of being linked to tragedy in uh theater Certainly, if you've ever performed before, the big no-no is you never say Macbeth uh, uh, off the stage. (laughs) It supposedly brings curses and misfortunes to the production. 
and uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was something that Argento came to believe in as well, why he was making opera. Uh, but anyway, Doc, what's your take on it? Okay, opera is a very underrated gem in Argento's films, uh, primarily because, as you mentioned, the Macbeth sort of tragedy or curse is associated with the play. Also, Betty, the main character who you know is is the main like study throughout the film. Uh, she even notes that she's very hesitant to take on the role in the opera play uh, because like her, you know, the, the, the prima donna that was supposed to perform in the opera has died in a car accident. And she has now been uh, brought to the forefront because she's the understudy. Uh, so she's very hesitant to do so, but she does so because she wants to advance her career. Um, and early in the film, like, kind of sets this like unique and maybe not too unique in terms of like Argento's films. And this is not like a supernatural film, like Suspiria or whatever, but it is kind of interesting ever since Suspiria uh, and knowing the background that Argento had and developing Suspiria and the research that he did, he starts to incorporate a lot of interesting aspects, uh, occultic aspects into uh, his films uh, in, in supernatural aspects, even though he's not, it's not foreign to him to incorporate these aspects. He incorporates them nevertheless. And again, the set prop that he uses for this is Ravens, which some could say maybe that was influenced by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, you know, with the Raven and uh, various other different uh, utilization. He, the Ravens actually, along with Betty are kind of the primary actors in the film. And we see early on that he goes back to his conventional sort of voyeuristic uh, standards to where you can see through the eyes of the killer. And in my opinion, the, the killer in this probably like has some of the most development of any Argento films. And the plot twist that's in this is probably unique in terms of like, uh, his giallos. I mean, even though it borrows heavily from kind of his uh, work on, you know, two, you know, three flies in the velvet, four flies in the velvet. Uh, we see now that it's it's kind of uh, gender reversal in this is that uh, and the person who is tormenting Betty actually is connected to her past. And uh, we we don't know fully who exactly is the person that's tormenting her. And in case people are wondering um, what that entails is that every time Betty gets close to somebody, uh, she is stalked by this killer. This killer follows her even to her apartment, confines her and sticks spikes in her eyes to where if she moves her eyes, she's going to have her eyeballs sliced in half and she can no longer see. And this is going to impair her. Uh, we later learn throughout the film and like they do so many misdirects of this film. You think it might be her agent. It might be uh, her direct. It might be the person directing the film. Um, this is another one where Argento stages sort of a, an opera inside of an opera in that the birds become the main plot device to where they remember the killer's face and foreshadow the killer. Uh, and the unique angle that is shot from like the Ravens itself. Uh, there's a scene in there where like they unleash, they have this like ingenious idea to unleash the birds into the audience. Cause 
somehow Argento knows that, you know, he, he interjects is that birds can remember humans faces. And that's a fact. Uh, birds like ravens and crows can remember people's faces and they can remember people that uh, are negative to them. And uh, this guy manages to go on the set and, and kill one of her, like uh, one of her costume, you know, uh, I think stage hands and also kills like uh, a bunch of ravens in the process. And he uh, unleashes sort of the cage uh, where she's performing, uh, you know, Lady Macbeth. And this is kind of interesting is that her own personal tragedy is also like sort of part of the curse. So everyone that gets close to her is part of the curse. So you don't know for sure if like it's it's happening in real time, if it's like th- this is part of the curse or if this is part of the play production. Uh, they But they unleash, finally unleash the birds, her director does, and the birds go wild and the, the audience runs out because the birds are attacking uh, you know, everybody, but they isolate this one particular guy and peck his eyes out. Uh, this is definitely like Hitchcock influence from the birds uh, that Argento uh, integrates as like a plot device. And I think this is a severely underrated film in terms of like uh, utilizing animals as a, as a single plot device. <laughs> but we later learn, okay, we later learn after she's been tormented uh, all these this time by this this particular killer, we learn that this guy is connected to her mother. Okay, connected to her mother, and what her mother used to do is make this guy kill for her. Like, and this guy was in love with her mother, uh, and that's why he targets her. Uh, and later we find out, towards the end of the movie, that he's supposedly dead, but in classical. Argento form, we learn he faked his death, just like the author Peter North faked his death in Tenebrae. We learn that he faked his death. And then we learn that uh, from her director, who saves her from the killer um, and, and supposedly like kills him, but it, it turns out that's not the case. Uh, they go off to the Swiss Alps. Again, the Swiss Alps are, uh, are like uh, the backdrop of you know, uh, Argent- Argento has a fascination with the Swiss Alps, uh, absolute fascination with them. We'll get into that when we talk about Suspiria. Um, he kills the director and then attempts to kill her. But and this is where I say people should maybe reconsider that Argento is kind of a misogynist. He, she takes the rock and smashes uh, his face in, smashes his, his face in and then escapes off into the sunset to where she finds a lizard. And this is what I mean. Lizards are even parts of Argento, which is in any other film, this would be, this would be <laughs> wacky. You know, you would consider this to be, uh, you know, uh, kind of wild, but in a Dario Argento film, she goes and finds a lizard and stuck in grass and lets him go and says, I am not like my mother uh, because she learns of the unfortunate truth. And by the way, she witnessed her mother getting killed. The guy who, uh, later, like stalks her and kills her, uh, is also the person who killed her mother right in front of her. Uh, that sounds if that sounds familiar, it's because that's that's taken from Kill Bill, and uh, Tarantino directly borrowed that from Kill Bill, uh, where the the anime scene where I think uh, uh, the character sees her like mother die and she's hidden underneath the bed, uh, similar very similar to Dario Argento's. Uh, 
uh, film and opera. So uh, that's interesting. Also, he flirts with the concepts of like hereditary and, uh, you know, killings and, and violence. And if they're inherited in families, uh, just another interesting aspect of, you know, Argento's repertoire. Well, if I'm not mistaken, too, there's strong implications of just the whole notion of grooming like a kid to be a serial killer. Yes. To be right. Yep. So I mean, That's also indicated as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a very disturbing movie in light of some of the things that we've been talking about here. But yeah, you definitely get uh, a certain sense of that when you're watching it, which also makes the inclusion of Macbeth all the more intriguing as well. <laughs> yeah.
Um, well, anyway, let's start getting into the Three Mothers trilogy. Okay. So can you start out by giving us an overview of the mythology underpinning the trilogy? Okay. The Three Mothers are three different mothers that are separated by their traits. Um, uh, Mother Suspirium is, uh, I believe, uh, I'm trying to think, what what is Mother Suspirium? Okay. I believe that there is... Let me just look. Let me look at my notes for in terms of like uh, three mothers. Okay, there's Mother Suspirium. Uh, there's the Mother of Tears, and there's the Mother of, of Darkness. Um, yes, Suspiria, and, Mother Suspiria is the Mother of Sorrows, right? Okay, Mother of Sorrow. Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, so there's the Mother of Sorrow, Darkness, and Tears. Um, this is pulled from a essay by thomas de quincey uh and dario argento actually came across this and incorporated a lot of previous sort of mythology and and also like lore into this uh off this essay from thomas de quincey which i believe he came up with while he was on you know kind of an opium binge for those of you unfamiliar with De Quincey, he's most well known for the work Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so what happens is, is that these three mothers, just to go back um, somewhere around the, the 11th century, they all organized together. They all like organized together to learn the secrets of living forever and to incorporate their their ability of witchcraft to to basically live forever to also incorporate uh alchemical sort of traits and the occult uh to control people and to gain power and ultimately i believe this is an analog let's just say i think this is an analog uh for some of the undercurrent and some some past sort of figures that have existed in European history. I would even say the Three Mothers concept, although Dario Argento adds sort of a dark and twisted bent to it, uh, come from stuff like the Three Graces. Uh, they come from also the Norns, which is found in uh, Norse lore. And of course, like the the three fortunes. Uh, so it's important to note that it's the the concept of three is is very important to Indo-European uh, uh, mythos. It's very important uh, that they are three they are three mothers. Um, so Argento has knowledge of this because, like, he reads the essay and he wants to explore this further, and. Daria, I believe a lot of this probably comes also from Daria Nicolodi. She deserves a lot of credit uh, for, you know, inspiring Dario Argento to go out there and to explore uh, this, the these these myths and this lore from, uh, you know, you know, from like the European past. And Argento has said himself that he was tired of doing giallo; it was getting stagnant. Uh, he no longer felt inspired about it because it was kind of, it was saturated. So he wanted to explore more of the magic, uh, magical and occultic aspects of, you know, of of these traditions. And he did so. He wanted to find an authentic sort of witch lore, 
Um, and then without any proper terms, that's kind of what I'm calling the three mothers, even though it's debatable, like, you know, which witchcraft is kind of debatable. Uh, you know, if these sort of concepts even exist uh, in Europe's past, but there definitely were wise women. There definitely were people that, uh, you know, were, were like the three mothers. And uh, these, these concepts, of course, like I said, they, they come from Greco-Roman mythology about the, you know, the, the three, the three graces, uh, the Norns, uh, etc. You could also throw in the uh, the concept of the threefold goddess as well. I think. Oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, yeah, and undeniable, under sort of hinted a lot of this as well. Um, and I mean, I think you could also look at maybe. I know you had mentioned this before, but potentially somebody like Elizabeth ba- Elizabeth Bathory. Oh yeah, I was going to mention Elizabeth Bathory. Well, primarily, I was going to bring up Elizabeth Bathory because I think out of all of the uh, you know mothers that's mentioned, she probably fits the archetype for the uh, mother that's in infernal and inferno uh, more so than mother suspirium. I believe even uh, Helena Marcos in suspirium is modeled after uh, Helena Blavatsky, uh, believe it or not, of all people. I think Argento actually even mentions that. And this is why it's hinted that she's a Greek immigrant uh, that, that came to this region and picked this certain region to establish the, uh, ballerina school, which is just a cover for uh, a coven uh, of of witches. Uh, so Elizabeth Bathory, I think, fits the infernal because the infer the you got you got to understand also that even though the three mothers are practicing alchemy, they're practicing sort of occultic uh, wisdom, and all ultimately it it springs from wanting to live forever. They're looking for the elixir to live uh, forever and to live infinitively. Uh, And Elizabeth Bathory uh, was someone who was allegedly, I'm going to say allegedly, because we don't really have much good records on her. She, Elizabe was kidnapping uh, peasant girls and taking their blood. And she believed this would make them live forever. Uh, So, People have to understand that if there is alchemical knowledge to for wisdom and for to to gain higher transcendence, to uh, you have to understand there's also going to be a darker element uh, to this wisdom, and I believe that that's probably what happened with Elizabeth Bathory and a lot of the three mothers uh, in uh, Suspirium and and Inferno and even Mother of Tears. Uh, which is a dreadful movie, but still watch it nevertheless for the lore. Uh, so yes, Elizabeth Bathory fits that sort of archetype of like, uh, uh, I think, of the uh, th- the other mother, which lived in New York City, which was the cruelest of the mothers and the youngest of the mothers. And uh, Mother Suspirium, I think, was the not was the oldest of the mothers, and. Uh, the mother of tears was the uh, was the prettiest of the mothers. And by the way, um, it has been suggested by some people in the movie Inferno that the woman staring in the lecture hall could possibly be 
uh, the mother of tears, which is based in Rome. And what I think also like the, the fact that they're based in Rome, New York, and in Germany is because these are three major power centers throughout history. Rome had the Vatican. America, of course, has a new empire, a new Rome. And Germany itself was the scene of a lot of different despotic governments and also kind of is the economic powerhouse and uh, has also been the, the nexus in terms of like Northern Europe uh, over the years. So I think that's also metaphorical. What is being said by Argento is that these different, uh, these different like mothers, they rule and they can, they secretly control the world almost like through a secret society and almost do um, even like you could, you could argue, okay. You could argue that uh, the whale house uh, in the free Freiburg um, Germany in the black forest maybe is a place where they lure in uh, younger girls and uh, maybe even sacrifice them uh, a la, you know, Elizabeth Bathory. I, I would make that argument. What do you think about that, Stephen? Oh, yeah, no, I could definitely see that. Um, I was going to say, too, in terms of the locations with New York, Rome and uh, the Black Forest region, um, I think it could also be seen as an allusion not just to worldly power centers but also a cult power center oh yeah cult yes all kinds of rumors about rome potentially the vatican library so forth new york has really always been arguably the occult capital of the country i mean certainly for the first 200 or so years maybe it was supplemented a little bit by chicago and maybe later say san francisco but still it has a very uh, rich connection with all of that and then the broader new york area and then finally um the whole area with the black forest is very interesting in germany on the whole because in america we tend to fixate on crowley and the golden dawn tradition but uh in reality in a lot of continental europe uh germany was usually seen as sort of the repository of a lot of this high occult knowledge i mean of course you could look to the Rosicrucian fervor, which started in Germany. There's, again, a lot of uh, compelling evidence that German occult influences were much broader in some of the early English uh, traditions that were John Dee and so forth and has been known. Uh, and then certainly German occultism would continue to have a major influence on France. Well, Rudolf Steiner. Yeah, Steiner. So... Uh, you could go on, but I mean, beyond a doubt, Germany is really, I think, overlooked as a major occult mecca, even though it probably should uh, get more attention in that regard. Ar Argento has said himself, uh, although like the the black um, black queen in the movie uh, or the, is associated with Helena Blavatsky, he makes an argument that the academy, the ballerina academy itself, is based off the Rudolf Steiner and his schools. Uh, that still exist, and partially, also um, his wife Daria Nicolodi had a grandmother who was, um, you know, famous French pianist, and she claimed that she was spirited away to this performing arts school, uh, which was really a, a cover for an occultic network and a, a coven of witches, uh, black witches, that is, dark witches, not white witches. And uh, she recalls this, that her her own, you know, this is serves the basis probably of the Susie 
uh, Banian character and also from, uh, you know, her own sort of recollection of this serves the account and the plot to uh, to Suspiria itself. And she talks about this. And I think she's alluding to the the uh, uh, the Steiner schools, which still sort of exist, uh, which Steiner, what he did is he he took a lot of the occultic elements um uh, the theosophical elements and he incorporated them in the in the arts uh, to where he believed that there was uh, an occultic world and also a living world. And sometimes they intertwine through the arts. And that's kind of what you see in Suspiria. Yeah, I could totally see the Steiner connection. And yeah, the, the and Dario Gento has said that too. He said that that sort of modeled he, he him and his wife went on this trip, what was known as the magic circle which is where France, Switzerland, Germany, and Italy sort of intersect with one another. Um, I think this is somewhere on the 47th, 46th, or 45th parallel, somewhere around there. Uh, he's mentioned this as like uh, being the inspiration for this, the uh, ballerina school in Suspiria. And yeah, the Steiner schools are still around. And uh, well, actually, they're quite prominent in Europe for the um, for places for elites to send their kids to. And also in uh, Hollywood, the two Steiner schools, there are very popular amongst many of the uh, actors and so forth. So, yeah, that's uh, an interesting element to this. Oh, um, do you have any more uh, anything else in Suspiria you want to add? Well, I also want to add that um, the three mothers also kind of go go a lot back to Europe's history, uh, probably even further back, I'd say to deep antiquity where, um, where even like before, and this is like speculation on my part, but I will argue this, uh, that before like sort of the Indo-Europeans are what's known as the Yemnaya culture swept into Europe. Uh, I believe that Europe itself had, had sort of a mother goddess figure uh, even a dark mother goddess figure. And I believe a lot of the three mothers, they represent sort of that uh, ancient dark mother goddess. And Dario, Daria Nicolodi and Dario Argento was kind of channeling into uh, in, in the representation. Now, one of the things about Dario Argento that I'm I'm not happy about is I feel like the three mothers mythos that he developed uh, from Thomas de Quincey's Suspiria book and also from like his various different uh, travels throughout uh, the magic circle where he goes to these different him and his uh, wife, his his now wife, uh, uh, Daria Nicolodi, go uh, across and visit. I feel like he didn't fully flesh this out or develop this to its furthest extent. Uh, he's probably done so most out of all directors. And I would think I would say out of all the directors, he authentically uh, sort of captures uh, occultic and pre-Christian uh, traditions that exist in Europe itself. Um, he probably has the greatest understandings of a lot of these traditions. And so does uh, Daria Nicolodi. And I would think it had to come from Italians. And also, I would say the the sort of dark mother goddess. Uh, was most pronounced in the Mediterranean regions as opposed to like the Northern or Western European regions, because uh, they had, I, I think they had more of a, a deeper connection to that. So probably there's something in Suspiria and something within uh, sort of the three mothers trilogy, including the dreaded 
uh, Mother of Tears, there's something in there that is like deeper. And, uh, you know, someone maybe, I don't know if someone could develop another film from this because you probably want to leave it alone. Uh, Suspiria is good enough as it is. Uh, but I think someone would probably need to uh, develop it further, maybe. It'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to explore. Certainly. Uh, well, uh, do you want to get into Inferno now? That's probably my favorite Argento film. Um, what have you, what's your take on it? Okay. Inferno is where you finally get into uh, the underpinnings of the three mothers. Uh, we learn that um, the mother that is in charge, uh, I think, is Mater Tenenbaum. She is the cruelest and the youngest of all of the mothers. And we also learned that uh, the person that helped assist and develop all of the centers and the houses uh, that the three mothers are responsible for, this is also the architect named Virilli. Um, and we also learned that of all the Argento movies, this is where it really dives into alchemy. And there's also alchemical elements that are in uh, Suspiria itself, such as the use of the colors, the primary colors of uh, yellow, red, and uh, blue. But this especially is interesting because some of the motifs that's found throughout Inferno, such as the triangle pointing down, is a direct alchemical sign, which signifies sort of like a fire. Uh, or earth actually no earth and the the of course the triangular motif which figures prominently in Suspiria which is seen in like the the scenes where the most prominent death happens uh of Pat in the film we can kind of see that that also like signifies kind of fire um and so what's interesting about this film is that the opening sequence we see Rose who is someone who's very curious about the occult um, and I think also Dario Argento is in both films trying to talk about the warnings about the occult, uh, but not in a Christian subtext. He's talking more about how the occult can be used for good or bad purposes, but it's not framed around uh, Christianity. And this is not to offend anybody that may be a Christian. It's just simply saying, I think Dario Argento is seeing uh, the prism of like good and evil through a different, uh, you know, subtext than Christianity. So what's interesting is like, she explores this bookstore uh, close by. She meets this really eccentric guy uh, who's very knowledgeable in the occult. He kind of is skeptical about it. Again, he says that, you know, women are superstitious and <laughs> which gets a chuckle out of some people. And Rose sees this and she discovers that her own apartment complex you know, is the setting place for uh, modern Tenenbaum. And she goes, of course, like uh, every person should, uh, to the to the basement, explores the basement, and goes into the water, which is interesting because the alchemical sign pointing down, the triangular pointing down, is sort of indicative of, you know, uh, of water or earth itself. And what's also interesting is that much like, even though it's not technicolor like Suspiria, we see also that like colors are used to highlight uh, when Rose goes and submerges herself in the basement and 
those skeletons pop up and she discovers like there's this ballroom that's been submerged. So this leads her further down kind of in further, further down and in a plot to further explore. What is this apartment about? And throughout this movie, we get narration from this guy named Varelli. Who is this guy named Varelli? Only thing we know about is this, this guy is the person who constructed uh, probably using various different alchemical symbolism and building these sort of uh, architectural wonders uh, for all the three mothers, which are located in different occultic and power centers of the world. And she explores this. Uh, she writes a letter to her brother. Her brother like goes and sees and, you know, uh, Rose, like a lot of different uh, protagonists, and unlike uh, Susie Banian, she doesn't survive uh, to the uh, last of the movie, although there is like a bunch of interesting scenes in the film, especially highlighting um, this library that she goes to, that she discovers and goes to like after hours, and she steals a book. Uh, the person chases her down. Of course, this library is not just any ordinary library. It's got bubbling cauldron, you know, uh, kind of <laughs> kind of like a witch's cauldron. And uh, she's being pursued and like these claw hands just come and, and, and uh, grab her and like slice her head off. Again, we got another beheading uh, in, in Argento film. In this case, I think this might have some occultic subtext and the fact that she's sort of stealing knowledge and Varelli says himself uh, that he stole knowledge and that he wish he would have never constructed any of these uh, you know, any of these like foundations for any of the three mothers. Like I mentioned again, he's talking about the dark gnosis, uh, which a lot of these these uh, three mothers have discovered. They've discovered the elixir of uh, eternity or the philosopher's stone. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's undeniable in that case. Well, I mean, certainly the location. I actually kind of interpreted that as an alchemist laboratory, like a full blow yes. she stumbles into. And then, of course, you have the the name the day heading there rose i mean again this i think really deliberately oh you're right rose yes being a christian rose and cross where decapitation plays quite a significant role in that whole narrative there so yeah i think that in this case specifically that's undeniably meant to parallel some of those traditions let me also point out something else is that uh Matt, matter tannenbaum was finally discovered that uh you know she's death herself and What's interesting is that symbolic throughout all of the film is that uh, when they appear, they appear as a corpse or they appear as death. And, you know, we mentioned Mario Bava previously. That was a common motif that Mario Bava used in a lot of his films is that he presented uh, death as death itself, as uh, the, an antagonist. In this case, like I mentioned previously, they're searching for the Philosopher's Stones. They're searching for uh, living eternally. And what happens is that they get their wish, but they're in a dilapidated sort of state and uh, they, they get consequences from dabbling, let's just say in alchemy and not acknowledging, uh, you know, the, the lighter side of alchemy. And this is not necessarily, uh, like I said, and I'm trying to illustrate this, that it's not necessarily in a Christian subtext uh, in many ways the people that are fighting against the uh you know the dark mothers or the three mothers they have to find a way to kill them 
uh, or they have to find a way to defeat them or destroy them uh, through non-Christian ways. So this is not a a universe where Christianity is central place. This is a, I would even argue, this is kind of a left-hand path sort of uh, sort of exploration instead of like Christianity itself. I I know that's kind of a a dirty word, but it's it is uh, well, I mean, sort of a. It's almost ahead. even like a left-hand path. I was kind of thinking of Rosicrucianism. I mean, even yeah. with the opposites, uh, with, in this case, with the mothers looking for attorney. I mean, of course, in the narrative of Christian Rosencross's life, he had discovered the elixir of eternal life, which had enabled him to uh, live essentially forever, be able to rise from his tomb. Of course, this is the whole, uh, of course, he had unnaturally long life to begin with. I mean, what, 500 years or something? And um this is supposedly part probably of told to an allegory well yeah i mean it's obviously an allegory it's using the whole you know kind of treasure hunt motif with this to try to locate the tomb and discover eternal life i mean of course it's actually through the alchemical transformation of the self that it's alluding to yeah and i would say the keys in the movie are also alluding that too well when they talk about the keys it's not actual keys uh they're talking about the path and I think the water symbolizes kind of the subconscious and the abyss in Inferno. And Rose, you could even argue, she was not able to withstand uh, sort of the consequences of the abyss. And she sort of stumbled and uh, died from the circumstances of learning about uh, this dark sort of gnosis. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that's my that. argument about uh, that may not be exact, exactly sort of the, the subplot of the movie, but I... I do get the notion that the the water in the basement uh, and uh, sort of like represents sort of subconsciousness. And uh, I would even argue the, the ending of the film um, and yes, water, earth and fire are part of like alchemy, Uh, the cleansing both in Suspiria and also in like Inferno, they're both burned down. And this is like showing that, um, there's a naturalistic element to alchemy and really alchemy itself is, is a religious meaning you can be a Christian and practice alchemy, or you could be someone who is not a Christian practicing alchemy. It's all about channeling sort of the inner workings of yourself and developing yourself further and overcoming a lot of these obstacles. And, you know, the, the three mothers, they have the power to overcome the obstacles, but they are corrupted by their own, uh, their own evilness, their own, their own evilness, their own uh, sort of evilness that corrupts them to the point to where they become like power hungry and uh, it reverses itself. And ultimately they're seeking life, but they become death. And that's what the maggots represent. That's why the apartment is dilapidated. And that's why the water sort of is submerged in like skeletons uh, in that that really kind of symbolizes a wisdom path into alchemy. A few other interesting things about this. So it's set in NYC. Obviously, New York City has had uh, its fair share of rare bookstores over the years. Um, but at the time that this was being made around 1980, probably the... Uh, the reigning champ for occult bookstores would have been the magical child. So I can't help but wonder if uh, the bookstore in uh, Inferno was possibly a reference to that. I know that Argento did spend some time in New York, uh, both filming parts of the movie and then also, I think, doing research. So 
quite possibly maybe he had heard from it uh, when he was looking around. Um, another thing, too, is I really can't help but feel that the original Ghostbusters was heavily influenced by this movie. The whole concept of this occulted architect building a, um, you know, a modern structure in present day New York or Rome or in Germany that was designed to harness these occult powers while, you know, to the untrained eye, uh, appearing to be a kind of mundane structure, I think is very integral to the first Ghostbusters. And certainly, I mean, with the New York setting and so forth, I really think that there was an influence there. And also too, I mean, Raider, they brought in their own, uh, you know, Ray's world of the occult bookstore in the second film. Uh, but yeah, I I do think that that was possibly something that um, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd had at least viewed while they were um, getting ready to hash out the script for the first Ghostbusters movie. Again, architecture and its occult nature is such a big part of uh, really all of the Ghostbusters movies, but especially the first and third one and the whole notion of the evil Shandor character, I can't help but feel was maybe partly inspired by Varelli. So anyway, something to keep in mind the next time uh, if you've seen Inferno, go back and watch Ghostbusters and keep that in mind. Um, but anyway, getting into the final one, a movie that I know is near and dear to your heart, Doc, The Mother of Tears. <laughs> uh, your... Let me, let me uh, before we go into that, let me just just um, just uh, ruminate on like Suspiria a little bit more. Um, I want to highlight also that all the rooms in like the ballerina school, they are named the red, uh, yellow room, etc. These colors, I don't think are coincidental. Uh, this sort of shows like, uh, you know, Argento's knowledge, I would say, of the different color schema that is in alchemy, representing sort of red as uh, being authoritative color, being transcendence, uh, kind of representing also like uh, yellow and the other colors. Uh, and a lot of like, um, let me just also touch upon, you know, Ferrelli. Uh, as well is that this actually comes from a an a real alleged real guy kind of like the christian rosencrantz character name um vulcan falconelli which is a play on the vulcan which is uh kind of the god of metals and also of l which is the the, the storm god i think in in canaan or the, the god of chaos um this is believed to be a guy that appeared in the 19th century. He's sort of like a figure, not like Christian Rosen, not unlike Christian Rosencrantz or uh, St. Germain, where he, uh, he sort of teaches people the art of alchemy. He had a brief encounter with this guy named R.A. Swaller Deliberates. Uh, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce or butcher his name, but he was a guy who, went to Egypt and studied the Luxor temples. He also went throughout Europe and studied uh, the different cathedrals, which during the Middle Ages, they believed uh, that the cathedrals had sort of like knowledge. And the stained glass that you see in like the the ballerina school in Suspirium, it's not a coincidence that that stained glass and the stained glass are different primary colors, uh, especially uh, yellow and red and uh, and blue. And it's no coincidence also that uh, blue figures very prominently in 
uh, Suspiria as well. It not only signals danger, but it signals a kind of wisdom because uh, also uh, tapped into Europe's not so distant past is there's a Brothers Grimm fairy tale about uh, the blue light uh, to where this witch tells uh, the villager, uh, I believe somewhere in Germany, to go into the mountain or go down the well for the blue light. And this blue light is supposed to give them knowledge. And what it ends up doing is just driving them crazy. Um, And this was also a movie uh, by the uh, Lenny Riefenstahl called Das Blue Licht, uh, The Blue Light, uh, which is about the similar sort of subtext. Uh, So I find it interesting that there are parallels with these different sort of primary colors and uh, in alchemy and uh, Volcanelli is sort of referenced in this movie. And in addition to that, he's sort of like this mystical character and he's associated with all these different sort of neo alchemists. And he's also like pinned and authored sort of like the two most important, I would say, alchemical treatise from uh, from the 20th century, from the night, from the late 19th century to the 20th century. Yeah, he's an interesting figure. Uh, for those of you who have read *The Morning of the Magicians*, you may be familiar with him. Uh, one of the authors, Jacques Berger, supposedly interviewed Falconelli um, in the lead-up. Uh, well, actually, I think it would have been about the time Europe was already engaged in the Second World War or was gearing up for it. I think it was like 30, somewhere between thirty-seven and thirty-nine. Um, but anyway, supposedly Falconelli had already seen the development of nuclear fission by that point mm-hmm. in time and how it would develop uh, terrible weapons. And then Berger claimed uh, that Falcon or that the uh, that U.S. military intelligence had dispatched him in the aftermath of the Second World War to locate Falconelli, but he was unable to do so. It was supposedly after World War II that Falconelli disappeared and uh, was never heard from again, though. I believe his assistant had claimed to have encountered him in the 50s or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, another interesting figure to turn up in this. And again, Falconelli, I can't help but think, was probably an inspiration for the character of Evil Shandor in the Ghostbusters movies as well. And I want to mention something also that I think is very very important to like Inferno as well, is that he mentions how he violated a very sacred pact, and that was like the Silencia pact. And I think that is actually taken from a real-life incident, if he even existed at all, to the uh, friendship and partnership he made with R.A. Schwaller de Libuitz, uh, the French uh, sort of Egyptologist, uh, quasi-fascist uh, that existed around that time. And I I think he sort of – he alle- this is alleged that R.A. Schwaller, uh, Schwaller is kind of uh, – a charlatan, you could say, but he did recount the meeting Volcanelli, um, and he was kind of an obscure enough figure to maybe that's true. I mean, who knows if if that's true or not? Uh, that he stole his mysterious of the uh, the cathedrales, uh, cathedrals from uh, from him and published it, and they were not supposed to publish that. So I think uh, you see that self alchemy is considered to be something that is not for the profane. It's meant to be somebody that is an adept and somebody that can practice it and someone that is not going to corrupt it, uh, I think is what uh, I'm trying to kind of 
state about this. And before we move on to the 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 wonderful mother of tears, uh, I want to say also that uh, Paraclesis is another interesting figure. Uh, Paraclesis is actually where we get a lot of our uh, alchemical sort of references to color. And one thing that's interesting about him is that he talks about blood being light and colors being a reflection of like blood. And uh, that also figures kind of promptly throughout like uh, even Argento and, and Jung's work, which I would even say Argento borrows from uh, the blood memory and all the, the, the rest of that is, is an interesting concept uh, that, and the light being reflected of blood is also seen in Sufism and, uh, a lot of different different mystical traditions. Sorry if I went off the beaten path there, Stephen, but I wanted to interject that. No worries, Doc. Uh, would you want to get into the delightful mother of tears? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The mother of tears is supposed to be the, the prettiest of all of the three mothers. Uh, it is a dreadful film. It is not a very good film. It does uh, somewhat have some interesting mythos in it. Uh, I think Asia Argento plays uh, this girl who's this researcher, archaeologist, and she finds out about the three mothers. So it does circle back and uh, sort of talk. It talks about Susie Bannon beating uh, Mother Suspirium. And um, it, it also talks. It, it, Daria Nicolodi in that film uh, is she is shown as like the white witch and her mother who had died in a car accident is like guiding her along. So there's still some interesting concepts in there. It's just not well executed and it's, it's kind of dreadful execution. And also I think the way that the mother of tears is summoned is through blood. Uh, she gets the sigil and she accidentally sort of bleeds on the sigil in this invokes the mother of tears so there is some i wouldn't recommend people watch this uh but it is <clears throat> it does have some interesting uh mythos which continues on the the uh the three mothers uh kind of lore but it's not a it's not dario argento's finest All right. Uh, as we get into the home stretch here, uh, what are some of your favorite directors, or at least who were the directors you think were most influenced by Argento? I would say Brian De Palma, um, Tarantino, and by the way, Tarantino is not my favorite director by any means. Um, David Fincher, who's also not really a favorite of mine. Um, and honestly, that's all I can think of in terms of like American directors. I, I don't watch a lot of American directors. I think maybe um, the director of Midsummer and Hereditary was probably uh, influenced Aria by Argento. Esther, yeah, Aria Esther, yes. Uh, yeah, I would throw in David Lynch as well. Oh, David Lynch, yes, of course. I definitely think that there was a pretty pronounced Argento influence in several David Lynch. If I may ask, what do, what do you think Lynch borrows from Argento? Uh, well, I think especially the use of colors. I mean, some mm. of the, like dreamlike narrative of some of his films. I mean, also I think kind of the uh, the sort of use of like the mystery format or kind of taken from film to war is maybe like a um, you know kind of a foundation for a much more surreal and graphic story. But yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely see elements of um, 
his influence on some of the Twin Peaks stuff, uh, probably Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart. I'm kind of thinking maybe the mid-period especially. Uh, but yeah, there is, I think, that interesting trace of surreal. Mulholland Drive, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I could probably see Mulholland Drive as well in that regard. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, De Palma would be an obvious one as well. Oh, yeah, License to Kill, definitely. And um, the, there's a scene in Race too. Yeah, 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 blood as well. But that only that I think that had more to do with um, uh, another uh, Italian director and and Antonini. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that had more to do with him, who was actually a big influence on Bava and Argento, believe it or not. Um, yeah, De Palma th- kind of brings together the nexus between uh, Argento and Gallo on one hand, and Hitchcock on the other. Yeah, which he's often been accused of like just derivative. Oh, I think Roman Polanski. I meant to mention I meant to mention uh, Roman Polanski. Um the tenet is definitely and repulsion. Although repulsion, he's kind of contemporary. I would say yeah, I would say repulsion, I think, was made roughly around the same time that yeah. was active. So yeah, I'm probably kind of a mutual influence. I mean, obviously I think you could see some influence of Rosemary's baby, like on Inferno and some of the mother's trilogy as well. Oh yeah. Um, and, um, the, and, and also Ninth Gate as well. Yeah, 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 no doubt. So yeah, there's definitely been some interesting links, but I do think that a lot of American directors have been more influenced by Argento than has generally been acknowledged, like you're saying. I mean, definitely some big ones like Tarantino and Finchner. I mean, I could definitely see that. I'm not a big fan of either, but I think they did borrow heavily from Argento, and I can especially say the scene in Kill Bill where they flash to anime and there's a uh, uh the yakuza kill the uh mother that's borrowed directly from opera directly i would say that's directly yeah. influenced by opera yeah i definitely think tarantino has been a lot more influenced by argento than people tend to acknowledge so yeah no doubt about that i have to say he doesn't execute it very well though <laughs> his use of violence is not artistic like uh, argento's yeah, it could just, I always felt like, because I, I just rewatched the Kill Bill movies, and I can see totally what you're saying. It just gets so redundant, especially in the first movie. I mean, actually, I mean, the last, I was getting really bored with, like, the oh, last yeah. 20 or 30 minutes of that, because it's supposed to be this, you know, huge climax with this epic, like, fight sequence, and it just kind of drags on and on, and after a while, it's like, okay, how many more limbs can she cut off at this point? I mean, like I said, the best part of that movie was the anime sequence, because it incorporated, like, horror elements uh, from, like, people like Argento. Well, good. And, and, like, trauma, it's, you know, elements from Argento. Yeah, certainly. Some good thoughts there, man. Well, uh, is there anything else you wanted to add here before we sign off? No, I think I've co- we've covered the Giallo and uh, Argento's uh, filmography and a lot of the occultic underpinnings to his films, especially The Three Mothers. I will say that uh, The Three Mothers trilogy, I think, de- deserves a show onto itself to explore some of the out al- the deeper alchemical meanings to a lot of the the movie and to some of the influences that both Daria Nicolodi and uh, Dario Argento. I will say this is interesting. The aspect that Dario Argento said about witches, he says uh, witches fascinate me. He also said um, quite tongue in cheek. I don't know about the devil, 
uh, the, the, even the, the, I think the devil is a silly and funny person. Um, and Daria, uh, Nicolodi said that, uh, she sometimes considers herself to be a white witch. I just want to add that to, uh, kind of the surrealistic, uh, information about Dario Argento's filmography in his own life. Well, I mean, um, also, too, you just got to throw in, I mean, as well, the, the way that he has used Dario Nicolodi. What's her name? Dario? Um, uh, Daria Nic- Nicolodi. Daria Nicolodi. It's funny, too, is they have essentially like variations on the same first name. Yeah. And then also his daughter. They almost look similar. And then his daughter, Arzia Argento, yeah. too. I mean, he's definitely done some pretty explicit scenes with both of them to put it mildly and then of course uh i'm sure many of you listening to this are aware that agia later played a big role in the b2 movement and uh the pushback against the weinstein and got it accused herself of of also uh inappropriately um sexually inappropriately touching her co-host which at the time i think was underage yeah she's been uh, in her own right a very fascinating figure as well so there's a lot too, uh, not just Dario, but his family, his broader family as well. Just a lot of different things that you could draw on from all of this. So, yeah. Hopefully this has inspired and intrigued some of you to go out and check out his cinematic overture. It is uh, one of the most unique out there, that is for sure. I will say this in, in closing. I will say that he is uh, one of the most fascinating, I would say, horror or giallo directors in that the way he over kind of layers trauma, violence, uh, pathos, and psychoanalyzation and surrealism and manages to somehow make a quasi-coherent film. Uh, I know I put a lot of word salad in there, but like, yeah, he he does actually integrate a lot of these different uh, you know, ideologies and 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 like uh tropes and and all through you know artistic uh, artistic lens and uh, presents kind of an, an interesting story and an interesting concepts. Nevertheless, I will say, um, you know, his films are disturbing. You know, it's not for the squeamish. It's not for the timid. Uh, some of his filming, some of the, the stuff that's explored in his films, I think is would be done in a, like a conventional way would probably be distasteful. Uh, but the fact that he's able to artistically express a lot of these darker uh, emotions and like the human psyche, I think, are are fascinating and interesting to study and to look into. And I also want to read that this illustrates some of the, the opening from Tenebrae. I want to actually read for the narrator. Um, The impulse had become irresistible. There was only one answer to the fury that tortured him. And so he committed his first act of murder. He had broken the most deep rooted taboo and found not guilt not anxiety or fill, or sorry, fear, but freedom. Any humiliation which stood in his way could be swept aside by the simple act of anni- annihilation, murder. Heady stuff, man. Yeah, very. Well, I think that is a good note to end things on. With that, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. 
spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the gold J Blu-ray, my people there, they're feeling me Down low, skin roll, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Shooting up the street, mama, fight or fight adrenaline. You feel that little tingle in your feet, mama, no retreat. Mobilize your whole fleet, hit the street. Tell me that you good for it, you want peace, go to war for it. Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump, baby, we gotta go. Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. What? 